What is up, everyone? My name is Adnan Shafi. I hope you guys are having a wonderful morning, evening, slash day. And today we're going to be doing a podcast that I feel is long overdue. Obviously, having one of our experts, Yanga, coming back onto the show. But we're going to be talking about the, the DRC's curse, uh, diamonds, rubber, and cobalt. And obviously, we know that the DRC is, is quite a large country. If you were to compare it to Europe, for example, it's going to fit quite many, uh, quite a few Western European countries in there. But now imagine the certain provinces that are literally littered with resources that range from cobalt to gold to diamonds, all these different things. So we're going to be discussing, I mean, sorry, discussing the the very the very unfortunate history of the DRC. And quite frankly, it's it's just it's looting after looting after looting after looting. And uh, it starts as far back as, as more than 100 years ago. But before we get into that, let's uh, introduce Yanga. Just tell the new listeners about yourself. Tell us about who you are, what you do, and uh, what your general view is on this topic. Um, hi, thank you so much for having me on the show again. Um, this is my second time on the show. Um, last time it was a bit of a heavier uh, conversation we had, which was about, you know, reverse racism in South Africa and unpacking that concept. Um, and yeah, but um, that being said, my name is Yanga, as you guys heard, I am currently doing my honours in political sciences at the University of Pretoria, um, with specialization in politics of inequality and uh, political philosophy. And I also work um, as an assistant lecturer in the university, um, amongst other things. That's usually just like the general thing I say. Um, and for this particular topic, um, yeah, this was kind of a, a topic that I grew a huge fascination about probably the first time I engaged with politics back in my first um, We didn't necessarily do it in much detail back then, but, um, you know, I did my own independent research on the side, and uh, I think I came across it uh, through, there's a, uh, what's this book called now? We did it in English, though, back in my first year, um, and, uh, yeah, it traumatized me a little bit, and that's how I kind of got into into this. I'm mean, gonna you know, look for the name of the book, and then I'll tell you. It's a very famous book, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, <clears throat> I, I remember that. Uh, I mean, the first time I learned about the <clears throat> the Congo was actually it must have been when I was in like year eight, and I remember just going to class, and um, we learned about cotton, and that was like the big mineral back in that day. And um, it was more or less, you know, raw materials and people focusing on how you can be able to extract those raw materials and produce them. I mean, essentially manufacture them and change them into things we would know as batteries. And that's when I started to realize that, you know, cotton, all these different things, it's used in all of our devices. And um, I mean, it, it puts you into one of those really weird situations where you kind of feel somewhat guilty because you look at your phone in your hand and you look at your iPad or you look at your laptop, even this microphone. I mean, like who knows where the, the raw materials came from. And I mean, it just goes to just show that in this world, there's so many different pockets. You might even, you can have laws within your countries that ban child labor. You can have laws that specifically prohibit the use of force and like, you know, forced labor, etc. But when it comes to the modern world today, all you can do because it's globalized is just go to a country where they don't have those laws and you can exploit workers and you can exploit children. So that's something we'll definitely get into. But I think it's it's in it's in um, it's in order for us to actually go back to the history and see where this all started. So just give us a bit of an introduction. So where did this all start? I mean, did it start during the slave period and a period of enslavement? Um, what exactly happened to the DRC um, and how did this, you know, this domino effect of oppression uh, just continue to spiral into what it is today, essentially? Sure. Um, it all really all started at the um, infamous uh, scramble for Africa, I'd say, um, and possibly, I would argue, started um, uh, probably about 75 years before that scramble of Africa even happened. 
um, because I'm of the belief that um, the scramble of Africa um, didn't just um, happen. The, 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 the European countries didn't just sit down and all of a sudden were like, okay, it's time for us to you know, go out into Africa and take what we want to take. Um, for probably about 350 years, um, the Europeans' uh, colonies um, really worked to explore the world and they had resources upon resources from the different travelers that they had around the world that they could finally base the decision of saying that, okay, we've moved out of the, you know, the slave trade now, because um, prior to that scramble of Africa was the Atlantic um, slave trade and the peak of it over there. And then the industrial revolution started to come through and all of a sudden, you know, there was no need for slave labor anymore, but there was a need for um, valuable resources that people could sell within like the industry and what was happening with the booming of the industry. And so the scramble of Africa was kind of like um, uh, something that was in talks for years, hundreds of years, I'd say, and um, it was putting down into paper um, a proper structure of how um, this colonialism was going to work, right? Now, in the case of DRC, um, they got placed under um, Belgium, right? And Belgium uh, was going to take over, and at the time, I believe King Leopold II um, was the uh, person who was in charge of the colonial route that was going on that side. Now, What's so funny about this is that it's pretty ironic how when you think about like uh, the major European colon uh, colonizers, so um, uh, the um, British Empire, and you think about the Portuguese, and you think about the um, German before the World War, um, you were we got a pretty clear sense of the kind of colonialism that they were bringing through to their different places, you know, where you had Britain who um, kind of went the route of settler colonialism and also brought in um, imperialism of some sort where they wanted people to speak the English tongue and all the kind of stuff. And then you had Francophone Africa um, being assimilated into um, the French culture and literally cultures being um, liberated. But what made Belgium so different and what made King Leopold so different is that he was very clear from the start that he was going into the Congo, now we know as the Democratic Republic of Congo today, he was going into that for the resources. And he was going into it for the resources by any means possible. Um, because Belgium didn't necessarily get a really big slice of the cake, but they probably got the juiciest part of the cake, um, primarily because that area um, was very strategic for, for the Belgian colony because um, it was rich in not just one kind of resource, which was kind of like what was evident in the other um, colonies where, you know, for example, in South Africa, the big thing that was here in Southern Africa was mining and it was gold and it was those type of minerals, but it's a one type of thing. In India, you know, it was the spices and China, it was um, the rice and the spices that was going on over there. But the Congo was so precious because the minerals that were available there and are still available today are minerals that can be changed and be used into anything and everything. You needed the rubber to make the machines work for this new technology that people had. You needed the cobalt to make um, the, some of the, the, the machinery that was being used for the guns, which we know is going to become very relevant as we move into World War I and World War II. Um, and more so, you needed the minerals, which they also do have, you know, they've got the gold, they've got the diamonds, they've got the silver, they had everything. And Leopold recognized this. And because he recognized this, he had no desire to change the uh, Congolese people to some kind of Belgian um, culture or anything like that. He knew that he just wanted the resources and he was going to get them in whatever way that he wanted. And his whatever way that he wanted was to um, do a 
complete genocide and probably one of the biggest genocides that Africa has ever had on the continent, which was what um, uh, the Congolese people had gone through during the, the Belgian um, rule at the time. And um, we know the atrocities that were committed over there from the maiming to the um, uh, to, to the, uh, the, the whippings that the Congolese people had gone through. Um, and all of this punishments and the tortures that they were being put through um, weren't necessarily for any Belgian desire. It was all about work. And it was, you had to work as fast as you possibly could. They weren't getting paid. Um, they actually had to pay back taxes to the Belgian government um, from something that they probably didn't even understand in the first place. Um, they were, um, a, a lot of the tribes were very much uh, manipulated into thinking um, that they were moving into better areas. Um, only to find out that they were actually being taken to areas where they were called mission stations, only to find out that they were taken to areas where they had to um, do forced labor, right? And, you know, there's some rumors that go around too, and there's no uh, confirmations on the sources, but uh, we can speculate considering the atrocities that were being committed over there, that there were some um, sex experiments that were being committed to some of the women, um, during that um, time. And it's mainly like oral traditions that we can get that um, uh, evidence from. And um, moreover, what was so interesting about this is that the Belgian um, empire under King Leopold did not take the effort, and this is very important to understand where we stand today, they didn't take the effort to educate um, the, the, the people they were colonizing, which was kind of a very different um, take, again, as, as compared to like the other uh, European colonies where they kind of had like established mission systems and within the missionary systems, people had to be assimilated in a specific educational system. That wasn't there. The only thing that the people were good for at the time was to produce as many resources as they possibly could. And this was not to say that they only wanted men or they only wanted women. It ranged from children all the way up to um, the elders that you could possibly think of in a society, right? So that's the the, the, the biggest um, start, I would say, of the downfall of the DRC and possibly uh, 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 the foundation of the, the chaos that has happened today. Now, obviously, um, as time has progressed, you know, um, the, 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 the Belgian uh, let go of the DRC, um, particularly when they kind of like had their peak of um, resources and they literally just didn't need anymore. Um, but in them letting go of the claims, which was a process that was happening during World War One and World War Two, um, there were uh, a, 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 there was a growth what I call um, non-state actors um, participating in exploiting um, the DRC. And these non-state actors making use of the local people in the DRC to get the things that they wanted out of it. And that has proliferated to the point where today, uh, the biggest non-state actors that play a role in the cobalt industry, particularly in um, the Congo, like Apple and Google and Dell and Microsoft, um, still participate in uh, practicing child labor. And I would even argue to a certain extent some child slavery because they don't necessarily pay those children um, to, to work in the mines because I believe that some of the, uh, the, the, the rocks that the children have to go through to mine that cobalt, um, adult hands can't maneuver them. They need small hands and they need small bodies to go through these dangerous um, parts. Um, but all of that, I would 100% say has got from very strong uh, 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 echoes from what um, King Leopold had done during his time. So yeah, that's a bit of like broad historical context of where it all started, I'd say. Mm. Yeah, I just want to add on to that in relation to you saying that the people think that, you know, the scramble for Africa was the first time that Europeans came to Africa. That's not true. And I mean, if you really want to go far back and start to like realize what exactly was going on, if I was to estimate, actually, <clears throat> obviously we've had contact with the Romans before on the on the Swahili coast. They were trading with the Somalis. They went all the way down to Kilwa, and the furthest outpost was actually called Raptor. And it was we still don't know where it is, but most historians actually say that. Uh, I, th I think it's like Felix Chami is one of the professors that says that it's in Tanzania, right? So that's quite far from Italy, but there was that contact. 
So even then they knew that there was resources, right? But it was just like people didn't really know exactly what was going on. Then when Mansa Musa came about and he made his trip to Hajj, there were obviously rumors that started to circulate, not only just around obviously the Arab Peninsula or the Sahara itself, but what you actually have is rumors going all the way to Venice, right? And the, the markets of Venice. And people began to ask questions, you know, and obviously there's people that are trading, all these textiles, etc. So they began to ask questions and the Portuguese were the first to find out about, oh, this is Mansa Musa, you know, uh, we heard that there's a lot of gold that's in this area, right? And many, uh, many people from Spain actually believed it was El Dorado. <clears throat> so this was a rumor that was going around. And you can clearly see that there were several Portuguese ships that were sent and Portugal was probably one of the first nations to actually start going and making these outposts, first of all, for the slave trade, and also just to generally fill out the continent and see which resources people had. So you had, obviously, you know, there's a, quite a few encounters, although it's not quite uh, termed as a battle or a war, but there were quite a few encounters with Somalian forces and the Songhai forces, etc. And the Portuguese were driven back by poisoned arrows. And they obviously tried with the Somalis as well, the Ajuran Empire, etc., things just weren't working out because the, the Ajuran Empire defeated them between uh, two to three times. And that's another thing that we just need to sort of keep in mind. But obviously they, they came for the Swahili coast. There was always an interest in Africa. Then now <clears throat> you obviously have explorers. I'm going to put explorers in quotes. Um, you know, people like Alfred Dapo going all the way into the Benin uh, Empire. And the same thing for Lorenzo Pinto in 1691. You have people that are going into uh, all these different cities inside the African continent and sort of feeling them out and saying that, okay, you know, you have all these different resources. That'd be really interesting if they were in our hands. And that's the sort of thing that was going on. So when it came down, when it came down to obviously the abolishing of slavery, I mean, uh, I mean, we have people like Eric Williams that actually mentioned that it was probably done for economic reasons. And um, the fact that they now had the industrial revolution happening. So it's not like they even needed slaves in the first place. So now you come to a point in time <clears throat> where you're industrialized, you have quinine, which is able to cure malaria and essentially open up the doors for uh, these European explorers to head into Africa. And they begin to start moving into the continent <clears throat> and obviously they use this the concept of abolishing slavery as also not just a not just to oh enforce it and we're good people because this is one argument that I had with one British citizen the other day, um, but it was literally a pretext for invasion. <clears throat> so it's abolish your slavery to impose our colonial slavery on you, and this is exactly what happened. And you said the DRC and the main reason why <clears throat> the DRC was so valuable at a time like this was because it produced rubber. And people know that this is the century, I mean, the 1800s, right? This is when the Industrial Revolution was happening. And this is essentially when you need things like conveyor belts. You need things like tires, because now in the 1900s, that's when the cars start to be a thing. <coughs> Planes start to be a thing as well. So you're getting all this different rubber and who are you going to buy it from if one of the largest sources of rubber is, you know, the DRC. So you see where I'm coming from. It's like, that's exactly how all of this happened. So everyone became dependent on the DRC for all of that. Do you want to just comment maybe a bit about these economic relationships and how people have really been fooled into believing that the colonial enterprise was for the benefit of Africans as opposed to actually being for the benefit of the, the mother nations in quotes and their economic interests? Sure, that's such a good question. And um, Yo, you just made so many excellent points over there. Um, I think particularly in the case of Congo, um, why it has been downplayed in history and why there hasn't been much attention towards it is because of how Belgium downplayed um, the role that they have played in placing the DRC in the position that it is in today. I mean, it was only in 2017, I believe, that they decided to acknowledge 
that um, King Leopold may or may not have necessarily been a horrible leader. It was only in 2017 that they were starting to evaluate the the, the museum arche, um, artifacts that they have um, in the in um, in the in the Belgian museum, um, and it was even then they still. Um, are very much in denial of uh, understanding that half of the stuff that's in there, if not all of it, does not belong to them at all. And it is there as a result of a lot of sacrifices and a lot of blood that was spilt for it to be there in the first place. But just to add on to the economic, um, historical economic positions and the role that Congo played, I mean, we can look at it in terms of World War II, right? And how um, in World War II, uh, you know, we, we had the, the, the German government um, come in into Belgium in 1940, I believe, and um, the Congo actually played a really uh, a big role in smuggling some diamonds towards Nazi Germany um, and uh, providing uh, uh, the, those diamonds to Nazi Germany. Um, it was as a result of Belgian business executives. And this is the point I, I, I want to make again, something I mentioned earlier about um, how there's, you know, always focus on the role that states play in exploiting other states, but there's very little um, analysis on the history of uh, business executives and the role that business executives play in exploiting other states. And today we can try to say that, oh, no, we can see that happening with modern stuff with the Apples and the Google and the Microsoft and the Dell because of the legal case and the lawsuit that they just had about the child mining. But it actually, it's all the way back to uh, World War II. And in the case of um, the Belgian business executives and how they were um, in uh, cahoots with uh, some of uh, the Nazi Germany um, soldiers to provide them with some diamonds, right? Where did they get those diamonds? Belgium doesn't have any diamonds um, in their country. And they also kind of had like surrendered to um, Germany at the time. Ah, yes, they went back to their colony, which was Congo, right? And that's where they got those diamonds from. Probably not even legally in the first place, probably again, child labor through some kind of exploitation that was going on over there, right? And I just want to see if I can find this uh, 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 fact over here. Um, but it, it basically says over here there was um, increasing demands that was placed on the Congolese population by the colonial authorities during the war. However, this provides rather forms of resistance particularly from the indigenous Congolese, and these were repressed often violently by the Belgian colonial authorities. The Congo's comparative prosperity during the conflict led to a wave of post-war immigration from Belgium, bringing the white population to 100,000 by 1950 that were staying in Congo, as well as a period of industrialization that continued throughout the 1950s. The role played by the Congolese uranium in this case is the particular resource we're talking about during the hostilities caused the country to be of interest to both the Soviet Union and the USA during the Cold War. Now, this is very important to understand because it brought about a shift in the traditional rulings that Belgium had over Congo, right? Because we know initially the strategy of King Leopold was that they were never going to settle in Congo. It was a matter of we take the resources we need and we leave right and we use whatever we need to use we get the money out of it we don't stay but then during world war ii this changed because um there was kind of like this spark in this realization that the closer you are to the place of wealth um the better for some reason your uh, uh, your wealth can possibly be and also the cheaper it could be and now it says here you know there was the proliferation of the white population to a hundred thousand who came through to stay in congo at that particular point in time right now i just want you to imagine to the everybody who's listening now the white people who came to stay in congo right during that immigration period did not come to assimilate to the indigenous Congo lifestyle. In fact, they came in and they continued with the Belgian traditions and they set up systems 
and economic system specifically to benefit them. And they expected the indigenous people to assimilate into their own system. By the way, that assimilation being automatically exploitative because they weren't going to get paid in any way or in any form. But moving further than that, because of the historical period um, of the Cold War that was about to approach, a resource that Congo was also very rich in and still continues to be rich in is uranium, right? And we know that uranium plays a huge role when it comes to nuclear devices and when it comes to making nukes and all that kind of stuff. So now all of a sudden, Congo became the center of attention now for the Soviet Union as well as for the USA. So now we don't just have its former colony being uh, you know, so invested in, in the country anymore, but now we have different states being invested in the country. But because we understand that the different states bring about different actors, there's now going to be an introduction of new businesses that are going to want to have a huge interest in Congo at the time. And globalization is playing a huge role in this, as well as, you know, with um, uh, the, the, the secret dealings that were happening during the Cold War and stuff. But at the center of all of this is the fact that the engagements that these people had with Congo were not at a beneficial level. They were not at let's economically liberate you. Let's try to have a fair relationship. It was a matter of we are coming in here because we are fighting against each other and we need your uranium to make things happen for this mutually assured destruction. You won't necessarily get much money out of it, but that's not our problem because we are the superpowers. Who are you? Yeah, no, I, th I think a lot of people just sort of misunderstand how exploitative that relationship was <clears throat> with the Congo. Colonization was not something benign in either, like nowhere was it benign. And we're talking about new imperialism, by the way. It was all about resources. It was all about, as Lenin tried to describe in his uh, book, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, it was an accumulation of wealth <clears throat> that came about because of processes such as slavery and just in general exploitation of, you know, paying workers extremely low wages, et cetera, in different areas of Europe as well. And once that wealth was accumulated by certain banks, you know, <clears throat> you have monopolies, right? And essentially when monopolies are the ones that, there, uh, that are there in power, like, you know, you start to feel a shortage of raw materials as opposed to all these different things. They're the ones that are using the raw materials, but you can feel a shortage of raw materials. So there automatically becomes a need for them outside and what do these companies do they team up with these monopolist banks as well and these banks obviously they come together to make a highly uh highly profitable investment in the enterprise of colonialism even in what lenin does in one of the chapters i think it's the division of the world amongst the great powers in imperialism the highest stage of capitalism what he actually mentions is that um these countries specifically, um, they had a specific interest in, in quotes, liberating their own people from poverty. And if you see Cecil John Rhodes and how Lenin quoted him, he talks about, oh, surely this economic enterprise will actually liberate the British people and be able to give everyone a, a loaf of bread for their family. So this was very much not for the sake of Africans. And this whole concept of bringing civilization over was all just a scheme. And you know what's even more sad is that when I talk to people here in the UK about that, they it's like they're, they're totally flabbergasted and they're just confused. And I'm like, you know, this was all a sham. It was, it really all was all a sham. And I'm very glad that you brought up the fact that these resources were actually being used as a form of weaponry. And this can even be traced back to World War I. <clears throat> so if we assume, for example, that the Congo is the one that's producing a lot of rubber. You can tell how, how useful that'll be in World War I. Obviously from just having you know, the straps for the guns just to hold them on, or just from having satchels, for example, to put in certain ammunition, et cetera, or you know, all these conveyor belts in the factories that are being used to make the guns, all the tires, all these different things that you're putting in your weaponry, in the planes, the helmets for the, 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 the pilots, all these different things were made like from some element of rubber, right? So there was a high demand for that. It only makes sense that Congo contributed in some way, shape or form. Obviously I can't really speculate as to the numbers. I'm gonna to need to do more research on that. But what we do actually know, for example, 
and I'm just going to get the statistic very quickly, <clears throat> is the fact that the brass casings of Allied shells fired at uh, in France, right, in the Somme, right, yeah, in, in two different places in France, was 75% Congolese copper, right? And this is World War One, guys. So in, adi- in addition to the French securing the first conscription of around 1 million Africans from around the continent, you have essentially the rest of <clears throat> the rest of you know Britain and you have France, both of them using the shells, or even Germany, I'm guessing, right? Because they must have been occupying the area as well. They're using copper from the Congo to make their brass shells, right? Imagine these shells are it's not like they were two percent Congolese, no, 75%, right? This is an overwhelming majority of the brass that comes from the Congo. So if people want to talk about the Congo. The Congo really is just an open wallet that the world often picks into when they need something. And then here was another interesting fact. <clears throat> and this is from Al Jazeera. I have sources from Al Jazeera, but there's also a lot of different sources that attest to this, right? There's a certain mine called Shinkolobwe in the Katanga province, and there was a uranium mine. And what people don't realize is that two-thirds of the uranium that was used in the bombs that was dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki came from which country? the DRC. And that one we can definitely say in terms of playing a key part in the Cold War, the DRC played a key part in both World War One <clears throat> and World War Two, and the Cold War. And this is exactly why it was so, so important for these nations to secure some element of control over these countries. So even if you want to look into post-colon- uh, post-colonization, <clears throat> and we'll get into the story of Lumumba later, right, in the Katanga province and going to the modern day in the next episode. But if you really want to just look at how desperate they were, <clears throat> when Lumumba said, we want to nationalize the minerals, the world went mad. The CIA started drafting plans to kill him. And if you guys think I'm, if you guys think I'm lying, <clears throat> there's literally declassified CIA documents that explicitly say, take Lumumba out. This is not a conspiracy theory. It's an attested, it's a well-attested fact. And, you know, they talked about poisoning his toothpaste with cyanide. They talked about having a sniper rifle take him out. Then eventually when they, you know, when they heard this, right, and Lumumba was asking for help because the Katanga province wanted to succeed, you have the Belgians sending troops back to, in quotes, bring back order to the Katanga province. It so happens that that province is one of the richest in the minerals out of the whole DRC. So definitely, I mean, these economic relationships are, are quite, they're quite, quite exploitative. Um, and, you know, I just want to add on to that. So maybe you're a, a listener and you just think to yourself, okay, this all happened, uh, you know, a long time ago. How, how, do you, how do you explain the current uh, civil conflict that's going on in Congo? How do you explain um, the, 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 the rapes that are going on against the women over there from the soldiers? How do you explain the child soldiers that's going on there? How do you explain um, what's going on there? Um, and just to point out, even though Congo got its independence from Belgium in 1960, um, things got worse. And things got worse because of that foundation. Um, You think of what was happening with the first Congo war and um, the first Congo war, which happened between 1996 to um, 1997, where it was um, kind of the spillover from the Rwandan genocide, things that were happening over there. And we have the the, the second uh, uh, Congo war, which is also known as the Great War of Africa, which um, officially started in August 1998, and it ended, uh, they signed the agreement in July 2003, if I remember. Um, But there's still spillovers that are happening from that particular war, and the conflict is still going on. And since we can trace back both the wars to the conflict that was happening in Rwanda, and how it spilled over into um, Congo, we know that the conflict that was happening in Rwanda was not a conflict that just happened out of nowhere. Um, People didn't just wake up and decide, ah, today we are going to go ahead and attack the Tutsis. We know that that in and of itself, the, 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 the tensions between the Hutus and the Tutsis was rooted in colonialism, was rooted, um, 
in a, a, a you know a European imperialism and the idea of colorism and why, why one group was more better than the other group. And we know that Rwanda was also, um, if I remember clearly, under Belgium uh, rule at the time. And I would uh, that that area that we called Rwanda was kind of more of a strategic um, area for Belgium because they that's where they found the lighter skin uh, Negroes, just so to call it. And they were a, a little bit more civilized. And that's where we got the Tutsi group and how then the genocide and its history, how it unfolded folded. Um, but I really just want to say to you as the viewer that um, almost every single conflict that is happening in Africa, there's no way you can divorce it from uh, colonialism and its roots in colonialism. It is literally impossible. In some way or another, there is some kind of colonial manipulation that happened and its ramifications have led to these small conflicts that have happened or even in uh, progressively a huge civil war to the point where a genocide between your own people um, was happening. And, and, and so, um, yeah, I just I just want to I wanted to to add in that that uh, be careful to um, use the the words of let's just move on. It's in the past now. Let's focus on blaming whoever's the the leaders right now. And this is not to say that the leaders currently in Congo are not playing an active role in keeping their people oppressed and in keeping the nation in the way that it's being kept right now. They are playing a massive and an active role with the relations. Maybe we can talk about this in the next episode. With the relations that they have with um, uh, with states, but also the, the the type of business deals that government officials make with um, independent mining companies who come in and come and practice this child labor. And um, make no mistake, we still very much are blaming them, but we have to understand the the framework in which they are operating, and uh, it it comes from colonialism, and it's important that we do discuss that moving forward, and we can't discredit. Um, um, you know, the colonialism. And I always like to run the parallel over here where, you know, when we when when we talk about um, Germany's success and where it comes from and, and um, how it acknowledges its past and it acknowledges the role that it had played uh, uh, during World War II with the Jewish population and the other minorities that they decided to eliminate. Um, it's important that we then acknowledge um, the history of genocide in the DRC and its ramifications and how it's unfolding the way it's unfolding today. Um, and the reason why people run away from talking about that, it's because uh, simply you don't want to hear how badly your country treated other countries. And I think that's why when you have these conversations with these uh, British people, we're just like, no, we were trying to bring good. We were trying to bring civilization. Um, it was good for Africa to go through what it went through because had it not been, um, it wouldn't be in the position that it is in. You are right about that. It wouldn't. It would be exactly in the industrial position that it's meant to be and have the riches that it's meant to have and reflect the wealth that it's supposed to reflect, but it's not because your states decided to exploit it for their own benefit. Um, and the ramifications of that are still being felt today. Yeah, I find it so unfortunate. And I think we need to actually apply a very critical lens to this concept of trying to put things in the past. Why are you trying so hard to leave something in the past when it's inextricably intertwined with what's going on in the present. Like you really want to talk about, oh, you know, tribal violence. And like, you know, this is the what they tried to, to play it off as in, in parts of the media. It's like, oh, look at this tribal violence, <clears throat> all these different things, all these tribes, uh, look at these Africans, these Negroes just fighting each other, how uncivilized. They got that independence 50 years ago. How can they not get up on their feet? Even we can know, <clears throat> we can know that these conflicts between a lot of African uh, ethnic groups, some of them, and if I may say, quite a few of them actually have to do with one group being privileged and another not being privileged. So if you look at, for example, the situation in Sudan, that's exactly what happened, where there was stratification that was built into those societies. Even if you want to look at Uganda, and I highly recommend that you read an article uh, by Tarsis Kabwegere that focuses on the dynamics of colonial uh, violence in Uganda. He does mention the, the concept of divide and rule, and he mentioned how the Bunyoro Kitara were essentially they were, they was, they were having a war with another ethnic group, 
and the British went to one, they sort of just whispered in their ear and said, hey, why don't you attack this tribe? And they essentially created a feudal system in Uganda where the tribes that were sort of there, right, um, they were living on someone's land. And this is someone that has teamed up with a colonizer and they've been given large swathes of land and you have to pay them taxes. And one tribe would be the one that would be collecting the taxes. And this is how this colonial system was actually perpetuated in most parts of the British empire. So you essentially have <clears throat> those systems. And like, do you think that those tribes are honestly going to be, oh, independence, now let's be friends, right? Obviously one, one certain ethnic group is going to have accrued a certain amount of wealth compared to the other, just because that's how the dynamics work. And so when I talk to people about colonialism, it really shouldn't be that hard to accept the fact that the amount of wealth that was ac accumulated from this process and you can see how hard certain parts of certain European countries had to hold on to it, like Portugal. A lot of these Portuguese colonies were literally getting independence in the 70s, right? 70s. Like if they were, if they were, if these colonies meant nothing, if they were so unprofitable, if they were a waste of money, why are you trying to hold on to them in such a fashion? It's like why are you so desperate to hold on to them? So it really shouldn't be controversial to accept the premise that actually African countries today and where they are is because, not only because of leaders, like although they play a role, even if we have great leaders, you cannot, you, can, you cannot ignore all of the inequalities that have been faced by Africans after the colonial period. And obviously IMF and all these debts, we can talk about those on another day, but even those ones are quite exploitative if you look at it, it's like, you, you make a country virtually bankrupt, don't give them any industrial resources and then expect them to pay back loans with what money, right? And even just going back to, to the Congo in general, it just feels as if people don't realize how intense it was. Obviously, yeah, we, we know that when white people want to ask for reparations because Germany declared war on them and they had to fight, oh, my city got bombed. Yes, we know the city got bombed, right? oh, these people were enslaved. It's like the concept of reparations only exists as a white concept, essentially, or like a non-black concept. Like you can only have reparations if you're not, not a black person or you're not a colonial subject in this case. Because when people were slaves, right? What happened when they were freed? Who got compensation? It was the owners, not the people who were enslaved. And if you want to look at the French colony of Saint-Domingue, which is now currently Haiti, right? If you, if you want to look at that example, it was actually, they were forced to pay back France uh, a sum of around 17 billion euros, right? 17 billion euros. And this is money that they ended up paying over the course of a century, right? And then of course, you have the British that were paying back their <laughs> slave owners. And then now after the world was finished, you have Germany paying back the other European nations. But when 15 million people die in the Congo, you think that they don't deserve any form of reparations? And if I'm being blatantly honest with you, if the rest of the world was to actually, or if Europe and the America, I mean, actually the US, right? Um, if they were all to actually atone for, for their sins that they've committed around the world and actually go, in, go back and repay African countries, they would literally go broke. They would actually go broke. Because... The, the amount of sheer support that these colonies have given to their economies and the, the idea of slavery as well, it's honestly, it's, it's unspeakable to think that some people would want to oppose the idea of reparations. What, what do you think about the idea of reparations? Sure. Um, I think you just, you just tapped into, uh, I think Franz Fanon, he speaks about this um, and um, this idea of uh, the, the black man's redemption um, and how that is a paradox in and of itself because there is no such thing where he talks about you can be unshackled from um, the physical chains, but the um, true redemption, um, he speaks about it in terms of consciousness, but I think in this case too, we can talk about it in terms of um, economics. Um, it will never happen. And I think we can also back that up with um, how structuralists would argue that in order for the capitalist system to function the way that it is functioning, there has to be 
uh, a powerful um, hegemon at the core, and they has to be uh, uh, sub-hegemons at the periphery. So a situation of the rich need to remain rich and the poor need to remain poor. There has to be a continued um, um, development of underdevelopment in order for the system of capitalism to survive and to thrive. Um, and in this case, um, if we're looking at it on a state level of analysis, Congo has to remain in the periphery in order for the core to um, function the way that it is functioning today. And uh, what makes it so um, interesting is that uh, in this case, you've got a state that is remaining, remaining in the periphery. And at the core, it's not just states anymore. It's these new actors that have come up, the Apples, the Googles, the Dulls, um, the forerunners of the fourth industrial revolution, which in, in, in a way, a structuralist would argue that that is how history works. It repeats itself if you have a continued um, system, because it, it was the same thing that was happening um, during the colonial era where Congo had to remain poor in order for the colonies to build themselves. It had to remain poor in order for um, supplies to be there during the world war world wars it had to remain in the periphery um, during the, the 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 first congo war and during the second congo war um, because it's not good for the overarching system which is capitalism which is kind of like what we're functioning in today um, and i would also argue that capitalism does not allow for reparations um, what is that for what at, at the, the, the very essence of capitalism, it's this idea of individual autonomy. And if you want to get what you want to get, you have to work hard for it, right? And if the system doesn't work for you, make it work for you. In this case, the system doesn't cater for reparations. It never has, right? And I mean, reparations is something that is spoken about probably in every single African country I can think of. And it comes up in different forms, right? You know, here in South Africa, um, the talk of reparations has to do with land and how land was stolen and how that looks like and the different ways to move forward. Uh, in former Rhodesia, in the area that we know today as Mozambique and Zimbabwe, we know that they were a little bit more aggressive in their way of dealing with reparations, where they um, went ahead and nationalized all farms and gave back the farms to their own people. But we know that aggressive way of doing things doesn't necessarily work. Reparation is something completely different in Tanzania, for example, where the idea of reparations over there was creating Ujama, this, this idea of having an isolated African country where things could just work the way that they were pre-colonial times. But we know that doesn't work because we can't be divorced from this global era that we're living in because there's no country that can function in isolation, right? And so it's, it's, it's a very tricky game to play of saying we need to get uh, reparation while at the same time trying to keep up uh, with the, the, the trends of what's going on in the world. And on top of that, requesting reparations to people who don't have the heart to give them and not because, you know, they don't have the resources for it, to accept it. they just don't want to. They don't want to, and and that's at the and, and that's what I really wish um, states could just admit um, and 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 stop with these uh, you know oh man for example when we take like the United Nations which maybe this can even be a topic for like a podcast another day when we try to unpack the fallacies of that institution but where you get uh, organizations intergovernmental organizations like the United Nations who appointed a panel of experts in 2001 to investigate the illegal exploitations of the diamonds and the Colton and the cobalt, et cetera, that was going on in the Congo that caused the, 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 the second Congo war and stuff. And how ironic it is that they are the people who are going to be finding experts to investigate something that the states and the P5 are actively participating in to make sure things don't work out in a particular country, right? And we know that this system exists because um, the hegemon or whoever's in power at that particular point in time in the global narrative also gets to choose what they want to get investigated. They also get to choose what they think um, should be an issue. And in this case, if the European people, not people, but states, and also the, the West just in general, don't want to reparations, 
they're not going to because that's where the power rests and if the power says it doesn't want to it doesn't want to um and it's it's very funny how this actually then plays out and i think we're going to talk about it i'm um, in the second podcast um, um in in uh province of Katanga and how that uh, is reflected over there, where you've got people who are crying out for help. Uh, you've got women who are uh, going through the most as a result of uh, the, 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 the soldiers that are in charge in those areas and that are going on over there and are requesting the help and are crying to this United Nations that's supposed to come and rescue everybody, but there's so much silence. There is so much silence when this institution that is supposed to be standing for people, aiding people, picks and chooses when it would like to aid somebody. And we see the same. It's not the first time the UN is doing this. It did the same thing with the Rwandan genocide. They literally let that happen. They let it happen. They let it happen. And then on the last, like the last day, they're like, oh, wait, maybe we should intervene now. How do they intervene? Oh, we'll just send a few peacekeepers just to see what's going on. And that's that's that. And it's ironic because it's like, how how are we supposed to get the help? How are you saying that um, there's help available when you pick and choose when this help is relevant? Because now let's say if we, the second that somebody says something anti-Semitic, and I really don't mean to hone on this quite often, but it, it's just proving your point that you mentioned earlier. But the second someone says something anti-Semitic or the second some leaders say something anti-Semitic, immediately the Jewish genocide gets brought up. Now, the second somebody talks about the impoverishment of African people in the DRC, why is the resort not talking about the genocide? Why is the resort it's the corrupt political leaders? Why is the resort there's just no water in Africa? Why is the resort they are uncivilized? Why don't we talk about why they are in the way that they are? Why? Why? Because the black man's redemption is not a real thing. That's, I mean, that's such a powerful point. <clears throat> and I want to just perhaps add on to that. <clears throat> I think people forget that, first of all, the economy post-colonialism was an integrated economy. And this is it's possibly the most deceitful part uh, of this entire independence process, like independence in air quotes, because people think that, oh, you know what? African countries got independence in the 60s and the 50s and the 70s, right? Why aren't they doing anything to help, right? I mean, like the help of the people, etc. Do you know that political independence is fundamentally different to economic independence on an international scale? Because the political order certainly changed, but the international economic order certainly did not change. So what you have happening it's that African countries, and I believe there's a, I can't remember the name of the paper, but around 88% of, um, of the exports that certain sub-Saharan African countries were actually, you know, uh, engaging in, like, you know, exports, they were to their former colonies. And it, I mean, there's no surprise that that was going to happen because you leave these countries with basically no form of industrialization. You've interrupted trade routes, right, that have literally been there for centuries and i was even shocked i was having a conversation with someone right and they just told me and this is where the colonial propaganda comes in it's like you know if there was a ring around africa this example that they used if there was a ring around africa and you know there was no one there to like you know have contact with africa from europe etc i'm pretty sure that africa would be worse off today and i was like are you, are you serious? <laughs> I'm telling you, you know, there's certain moments in my life where I've had to control my anger. But are you serious? Right? I've mentioned, I've mentioned this before, and this is not rocket science. African societies were trading with each other, all kinds of things. If you want to go to Kanembornu, they were literally trading tin. They were trading certain horses, right? They were trading even giraffes. They sent a giraffe to the Sultanate in uh, Tunisia, right? And then you also have Mali, Timbuktu. And I believe it was uh, Leo Africanus that mentioned that <clears throat> books was one of the highest, uh, you know, valued goods. And it was like one of the highest exports from Timbuktu, 
right? You have curry shells being found in the Maldives, and these curry shells are also being used in the Malian Empire. This is from Ibn Battuta. And we know for sure that these trade routes were so complex, they were so profitable, when Mutapa was literally trading through the Swahili coast, and they were able to trade all the way with China, and they were sending gold all the way to China, and which, which was one of the, the sultanates that really benefited from this, the Kilwa Sultanate. They were one of the first and only sultanates to actually mint their own coins, and they were gold coins. So, I mean, these are all things that, you know, if you look at it from... From that perspective, it's like, does that really make sense? It's like people are making assertions based on colonial propaganda that they know nothing about. And it's quite unfortunate. On the topic of reparations, though, right? African countries did actually try to fight back. And people don't know about this. And this, again, history not being taught the way it should be. But several African countries, and not just African countries, Latin American countries, and several countries from the Arab Peninsula, actually came together through the institutions of obviously OPEC, which is dealing with oil. And they were also uh, dealing with other African countries. You can, uh, there's a non-alignment movement, right? You've heard possibly the Casablanca countries or the Monrovia countries, da, da, da. So the Casablanca countries were the ones that were really looking for international ec economic change. And you have figures like Kwame Nkrumah, Leopold Senghor, you have Boumediene, really saying that actually we need a new international economic order. And my goodness, my people, the way the United States of America fought back against this, right? And you should read the literature on this. Actually, it's very interesting. <clears throat> For lack of a better word, unfortunately, it's called this in the literature, but people call it the Third World Project. And I mean, African countries came together and they said, hey, we need a new international economic order. We want better negotiation uh, policies <clears throat> for our commodities. We want exchange of technology so that we can be able to industrialize. We would like some element of funding, no strings attached. Um, and I mean, this is, I guess, what you would call reparations. I mean, this is what African countries were asking for. But why did they say no? Why did the other countries say no, right? And who was vehemently opposed to it? The former colonies. It's because they had profited. And I tell people this, <clears throat> slavery was, slavery and colonialism was the first part. It's like slavery is like, you know, when you go and you steal a bit right? It's like you've walked in someone's house and you've stolen an apple. Then you're like, hey, there's no security here. Let me go in with an armed group and let me take over the house. And you start baking cakes and you start shipping them back home. Then now the you hear the police are coming, you hear the police are coming, you decide to leave the house. You're trying to take all the goods with you. That's literally how this entire system functioned. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's what happened. And I'd say even for the DRC, it's basically the same thing. You can't expect the DRC to somewhat industrialize overnight without some form of reparations, in my opinion. But as we come to a close of this part one, um, I just want to perhaps ask Yanga if she has any closing statements and perhaps just give us a bit of a teaser about what we'll be talking about next episode. Awesome. I just wanted to comment on the, on the joke because it's a joke that person said about how Africa would be nowhere without European countries. And to that person, I just want to tell you that the DRC alone um, has got a resource wealth that is estimated to include $24 trillion in untapped mineral resources. $24 trillion. I don't know where we stand with global debt or whatever, but I'm 100% sure that that wealth surpasses global debt. Um, but that's just like a little fun fact for you, whoever you were to try to argue that point, my goodness. Um, but I think uh, for, for, for the next um, time that we talk, I think we're gonna go uh, into a bit more detail about um, the, the wars, the two Congo wars um, and life post-independence in Congo and how it is in the position that it is in today. Um, and then go into that detail about um, perhaps the role of the fourth industrial revolution um, in bringing in companies like Apple and Google and Dell and Microsoft um, to have this particular keen interest in um, Congo and in Cobalt. And um, even add on to that the uh, fact that now the, the, the colonial 
aspect of things is perhaps being replaced by a, a, a global power because I've moved away from classifying China as an emerging power. It's a, it is a global power, 100%. Um, and the role that China is playing um, in putting in its footprint into the DRC um, and kind of that transition of power from the West over to China. And what does that mean moving forward for the DRC and perhaps for the African continent um, as a whole? Um, but yeah, I'm very excited to, to unpack that in, in, in more detail next time. Yeah, thank you so, so much again for this podcast. I feel like the story of the DRC is is one of the the most heartbreaking in my opinion and <clears throat> who knows what the next 100 years will, will hold will the drc ever be free that's a big question that I, I i mean i hope the answer is yes because quite frankly i mean you know this is just a country i'm pretty sure imagine if the drc first of all was left to its own devices right no colonialism they found a way to industrialize they found a way to tap their own resources etc maybe they would have become the world power Right, because it's not. I mean, literally, it's not even about the size of the country. If the UK, as small as it is compared to the DRC, right, it can literally be the size of a province in the DRC. Compared to DRC itself, just being an independent state, and imagine if Lumumba even tried to nationalize the resources, that would have been oh, the West's biggest nightmare. That's probably why they got rid of him. <clears throat> but definitely, um, we'll we'll talk more about the. You know, obviously the situation with Patrice Lumumba, we're going to tell that story in full because it's a very important one. And then we're also going to look at how individuals like Mobutu Sesaseko were essentially, you know, puppets for the U.S. in this power play of the Cold War and trying to as well, you know, just have access to those resources. Right. And the U.S. was definitely, <clears throat> I'd say this is where the U.S. becomes <clears throat> a very important power in terms of resources in africa but that's we're going to do that and a lot more but thank you guys so much for listening thank you so much younger for you know cutting our time to be here as well um once again thank you to everyone who's listening and we will see you in the next episode